0: and welcome to the podcast for Christ Community Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. This is a message given by Tom Job on Sunday morning, June 18th, 2023, from the book of Revelation.
1: This is out of the book of Revelation, so I wanted to read to you out of Revelation chapter 2. So the book of Revelation is like super different, right? It's super different. It's not like, it's a book, it's written in symbols and and code to people who were having to kind of speak code because their life was in danger. And it was just, um, it's just kind of written you can't really read it like other books because it was just kind of written to make images explode in your brain. It's ta- it's talking to another side of your brain than other places in the scriptures are. There's I remember when I was in Bible school and we used to we used to study like I took a class in the book of Psalms. And it's just a song, and somebody's pouring out their heart to God. And we would just analyze it, like grammatical analysis. And this is in a chiastic form, and it starts with an introduction, and then the lament proper, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, it isn't. It's a song. It's kind of like when you were in high school, and they took a frog, and you dissected it. And then you put all of its guts out, and you had it all nailed down. And in the end, you said, so this is a frog. And I'm like, no, it used to be one. There's it's not, a, it's not a frog anymore. Everything froggy about it is gone. So anyway, the book of Revelations, it's just different that way. So in chapter, it was really written, um, it was a book that was written to give for people who had every reason to be anxious about lots of things. And it was to give them apocalyptic answers to their anxieties. The word apocalypse means to pull the calypso. The calypso means a curtain. It's just like if we could just pull the curtain aside a little bit and you could see things from heaven's point of view or from God's point of view, you would see things in a really different way. So I've been reading the book of Revelation for myself to give me apocalyptic answers to modern day anxiety. And it's really been helping me a lot. so chapter 2 and 3 are seven letters that came down from heaven, from Jesus, to seven, seven different churches. So I just want to read you one, a couple of them, to give you a feel for them. But in verse 12 of chapter 2. So Jesus, oh gosh, he'll, so he always talks about himself in a specific way for each one of these churches. And then he'll tell them something good that I see about you. In, in two of them, there was only good things to see. And then he would tell them, but here's something that I'm upset about. And there were two of them. That's all they got were things that Jesus was upset about. The letter to the church at Pergamum right? These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name, and you did not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols, and they committed sexual immorality. Likewise, there are some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." I want to read the, the the very last one this is at the end of chapter 3 in verse 14 to the angel or the it's a word that really that means messenger to the messenger of the church in Laodicea these are the words of the amen the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation i know your need your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot i wish you were either one or the other but because you're lukewarm, you're not cold or hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. In the Latin translation, this is the word vomitari. It's the word, it means like about to puke. It's about to. Phew. You're about to make me puke. It's what, what he's saying. Because you say I am rich and I have acquired wealth and don't need anything, but you don't realize that you're wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in fire, by the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, to cover your shameful nakedness, and salve for your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my words and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and he with me. Lord God, wow. Anyway, I do ask you to help us to understand this, to understand what moves your heart, to understand what you care about, to go away from here super encouraged by that. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um... Golly, to me, there's, there's something that happens to me when somebody, like when somebody is super, super sweet, and um, they get upset about something, and, like, I think I've told you all this before, but one of the people I've loved, I've always loved, just because he's so sweet, was a, pa- a pastor who wrote a lot of books for pastors. His name was Eugene Peterson. But he grew up in Idaho. And when he was a kid, he grew up in a Pentecostal church. And his mom, his mom was a Pentecostal preacher. And she preached in bars out like in the wild west of Idaho. But she, but um, when he went to school, he, started going, he was in the first grade. And there was a kid named Garrison who was in second grade. And he just picked on him. And he said, sometimes kids who pick on you, they just have a sixth sense. And this kid just picked on him. And he, and he called him a Jesus baby. And he, said, he went to his mom and his and his mom said and he told his mom he keeps calling me a a Jesus baby, and he keeps picking on me because I'm a Christian, and, Jesus, and she said, J- just remember the verse Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name, and this is the way it's going to be in this world, and just get used to it, you know? And then one day, and the one day he was just picking on him, and there was a bunch of kids around, and Eugene Peterson, like he said, he was in the first grade, and he said, I just couldn't take it anymore, and something snapped, and I just grabbed him, and it turned out I was stronger than him, and he didn't know it, and I didn't know it, and I shoved him to the ground, and I sat on his chest, and I put my knees on his arm, and I said and he said let me up let me up and he said say uncle he said no And he says I punched him in his face and his nose kind of exploded and all that blood something woke up in me and I said say uncle he said no and I punched him in the face again and then the Holy Spirit and he said and he said no and I punched him again and then he said the Holy Spirit started to kick in in my heart and I said, "Say I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior." And he said, "No." And he punched him in the face again. "Say I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior." He said, "No, I'm not going to say it." And he punched him in the face again. And he said, "Say I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior." And he said, "I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior." And he said. So I let him up, and he said, "That was my first convert." But there's just, <laughs> but there's just something about like there's people that are super sweet, and that you know just. And but when they get upset, it 's just kind of powerful when they get upset, but there's a a lot of times in the Gospels Jesus would get upset with people and get upset about things and get upset sometimes with his friends, sometimes with his family, sometimes with people who should have have known better. And I think, like, if this is a book that's supposed to help people with with anxiety, that's, like, my greatest anxiety. I think if I were to put it in any one thing, it's that Jesus is upset with me, and I don't really know why. And there's, um you know, I've always had a feeling in my heart, like, when people say that Jesus loves you just the way you are. And I've always felt in my little Holy Spirit-filled heart And I know that sentence needs tweaked a little bit, probably a little bit of grammatical tweaking. Like it it should probably be, and I really think this is better, that Jesus loves you, semicolon. You are the way you are. Like in other words, he loves me. I mean, he loves me. He loves me. He loves me. Even though I am the way that I am, but I know that he doesn't love like all of that in Tommy world, you know? And I wouldn't really want him to. Like, I wouldn't want Jesus to love me just the way I am. I want him to love me. And if there's some things he needs to fix, I want him to love me enough to fix them. So, but the, just, but the idea, so like in the idea that Jesus could, uh, that p- people made him upset about things and there were, but then when you find out, like in, in the gospels, if, when you find out the things that made Jesus upset, and when you read these letters and you find out what makes Jesus upset, it makes me love him more and it makes all of my anxiety go away. Like there's a place in Matthew chapter 17 where there was a man and he had a son and the son was really in kind of desperate shape and he had taken him to Jesus' his friends and they couldn't help him and Jesus got upset and he said, bring the boy to me. And he fixed him like with a word and then... Later on, Jesus' friends said, why couldn't we help him? And Jesus said, these kind of situations can only be resolved through prayer. And they were kind of like, well, what do you mean by that? And Jesus is like, exactly what I said. Bring the boy to me. Don't waste. Any time trying to solve problems you can't solve on your own like it's just just bring stuff to me so in these so in these seven letters they're not really letters they're really kind of short prophecies it's kind of like something that you would find in the book of Ezekiel or something but and a prophecy was um In the Old Testament, it wasn't always telling you what was going to happen. A lot of times a prophecy would be just a prophet saying, You know, this thing right here, let me tell you what God really thinks about it. You think it's awesome. Upon further review, it's not awesome. You know, that ever the way you do, or the way, you know, this whole stuff in your society, it's like he doesn't like it at all. And so in these letters, there's always something that Jesus said, Let me tell you something that's really awesome about you. And then he said, on the other hand, I do have this against you. I'm upset about something that's going on here. So, But then when you find out what it is, and, and it's just, so like these seven, seven churches in just in Western, modern-day Western Turkey, but they were, you know, when you think about it, they were just clusters of little communities of followers of Jesus just kind of spread out everywhere, just kind of little clumps of, Jesus followers in little clusters in cities that some of them were waxing and some of them were waning. But they were people like, like they were people who lived in a society like, like the letter to Pergamum, for example. It was a city that had like a thousand temples to like pagan gods. They had a temple to the god Asclepius, who was the god of healing. And it's that snake. The, you know the snake that you see on the American Medical Association all that stuff that's a in Pergamum they were all Slytherins like, pretty much. But they but so but that's what they worshipped. But they had a thousand gods, and their gods, the gods that they worshipped were always the worst of them. Like they they were petty, they were mean, they were oppressive, they were abusive, they were they could be sexually abusive. And then this was a little clump of people who had come to know, to believe and to know and be convinced that there's only one true God. And this one true God has come down to our earth and we have come to understand that as your gods are the worst of who you are, the true God is the exception to who we are, that he is love, and that he is good, and that he has come to die and pay for us. And he did it, and he rose from the dead. And he's offering to whoever wants it a relationship of love. And because it's a relationship of love, He won't force it on you. You have to accept it. And we are giving, we are the ones entrusted with this message and this invitation. We are the only human beings on the face of the earth right now who know this and have been entrusted with this message, which means we are the most important people in the world. And so he cared about them and he cared about. How things were. So, in the very last city, it was kind of a circle, the city of Laodicea. He said, "Um, I'm upset about something. They didn't have anything good. And he said, Because you're cold, you're not cold, and you're not hot. And you're just lukewarm, and some people think that he was talking about the fact that like you're neither spiritually you're neither spiritually cold or you're spiritually hot. You're kind of somewhere nowhere in the middle, and um, I don't really think that that's what it means. But most scholars believe that he was referring to the fact that Laodicea didn't have a water supply, and so their water came on aqueducts and seven miles from Heropolis. There was warm water springs, and there was cold water springs from Colossae that was about 10 kilometers. But by the time they got to Laodicea, they were both lukewarm. They were just like, it was just kind of disgusting. It would be like a swimming pool. It's not good for taking a bath in, and it's not good for drinking. It's just kind of yucky. And he's just like, you know, y'all are just kind of are You're you're just kind of yucky. It makes me feel like I'm going to throw up. And it's like, well, what was it? He says what it was. He said, because you said, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing, and you don't know. And this is what upsetting me. You don't know that you're poor, and wretched, and blind, and miserable, and naked. And it's upsetting. It was upsetting to Jesus because he's like, I have so much I want to give you. I died and rose again because I have a lot that I want to give you. And I want a relationship where you need me and I give stuff to you and it gets deeper and deeper and sweeter and sweeter. And you don't need me. You do, but you don't know that you need me. And I think, how could a person not wake up in the morning and know I need Jesus for food? I need Jesus to protect me all day. I need Jesus to bless my day. I need Jesus to forgive the messes I'm going to make through the day. I need Jesus to guide me and to tell me what to do. I need Jesus to give me the strength and the courage and the endurance and the patience to do what he tells me to do when I know what he tells me to do. I need Jesus like a branch in a tree. I need Jesus like a sheep with a shepherd. I need Jesus like a baby with his mother. I need him. And yet there are some people who just feel like, I'm fine. You're not fine. Sure, we're fine. I don't really need him. I haven't really talked to him for three weeks. It's like, what? What? How is that conceivable? There's some, and just for him, it was like, it just made him upset because, just because there was something that he wanted. It was relationship. There was something that he wanted to give them. It was everything. Sometimes I do think that people go through phases and spaces where they feel that more acutely, like when people are, like when people are sick or when people are in the hospital. I did that thing, I did that thing a a year and a half or so ago where it was chaplain training at UT medical center, and people, with, when they're in the hospital and you're just going around, and you're just like a chaplain, you just go into the room. I used to say, hey, I'm Tom. I'm one of the chaplains here. I'm just going around pestering everybody, you know, and then you, they let you in. You sit and talk, and then you say, could I pray with you? Everybody will let you pray with them because they feel it more acutely. There was a, I remember a, a guy that I really came to, to love who wrote a lot of books about ALS, and he died of ALS, but he, he used to say, I'm not afraid of being dead, I'm afraid of getting dead and he said whenever I, f- I feel that way and kind of panicky I have a three by five card that has Hebrews chapter 13 verses five and six that says he has said I will never leave you and I will never forsake you so we can say with confidence the Lord is my help I will not be afraid and uh, he said I just read it over and over and over and over and over again to myself for five minutes and at the end of five minutes I feel better, and I remember one night they called me, they paged me about one thirty when I was up there in the morning, and there was a woman who was afraid, and they said, "Would you come up and talk to her?" And so I went up and talked to her, and just she was older, probably seventy something, and and um and I said, "Do you mind if I pray with you?" And she said, "No." And whenever you ask somebody in the hospital if you could pray with them, and they reach out to to grab your hand, it means they've done that before. It means they know what you mean, and they know what you're gonna do, and so. Uh, what I thought of was I just went down and I wrote that verse on a three-by-card card. I took it back to her room. I taped it on the rail of her bed. And I said, when you wake up in the morning, in the night, and you're afraid, read this to yourself over and over and over again. And she said, I will. So sometimes I think when people are, you know, like when, so when people are in the hospital, or so when people are in, like a lot of times I think people that are in 12-step groups, like that, that get into 12-step groups, there are people who basically, you know, there's the Apostles' Creed, and there's the Nicene Creed. There's kind of the Laodicean Creed. I believe that I am poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. I need Jesus for it everything. Like when people go into those groups and they say, I'm powerless over this. I'm powerless over that. And my life has become unmanageable. Step number two, I need a power greater than myself to restore me to sanity. Number three, I turn my life and will over to God as I understand him. And a lot of people are critical sometimes of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, because it doesn't talk specifically about Jesus. And there's a reason why they don't. And they be- did when they began. And it became complicated. And a lot of people who join Alcoholics Anonymous actually find Jesus in the end because the God of their understanding, after they talk about everything they've done, he's kind of like the only one that's standing that would put up with them. You know what it, So, But um, some, I, sometimes I feel that there are, there are people who need God so much. And, and it's almost like... If their life was a jigsaw puzzle, they're missing the Jesus piece sometimes. But I feel like a lot of people who are Christian, they have the Jesus piece, but they're missing all the other pieces. They don't really need him for anything. So sometimes I think when you get into ministry and you get in over your head, and it's like, Jesus, I need you to, to help me. There was a, gosh, I remember one time in 1994, I was going with a friend, and we were going through the country of Bosnia during the war. And on the third day, we had taken about an hour and a half of a mountain pass. And we had come into the upper part of Bosnia. And it was late October. There were beautiful colors. It was just like East Tennessee, which I hadn't seen that in 10 years. But we rode along the road for about, I don't know, 20 minutes. And we passed no cars coming or going. And Lou said, you know what that means? And I said, what? He said, it means this road is famous for bandits. And I said, what does that mean? He said, that means that we might go over a turn or go around go over a hill and there'll be a group of people standing in the street with machine guns and the best case scenario they leave us standing in our stocking feet and take everything we have or worst case scenario they take everything we have and leave us lying in our stocking feet and I said well what do we do he said we do this right here and he put a cassette tape in the thing it was just a song of praise about Jesus is a warrior and how he fights our battles and that we don't have to fight and then he rolled down our, our windows and he said and we sing as loud as we can and that's what we that's what we did so but anyway So so I guess that's one of the reasons why Jesus was upset with them in particular, is he had so much to give. And they didn't need him. So there's kind of another thing that happens in these letters. I was just reading through them that kind of impressed me. And that is in two of the letters, in the letter to the church at, at Pergamum and in the letter to the church at Thyatira. One thing that Jesus was upset about had to do with sexual immorality, and that, and that it was a thing to him. And that some people were teaching things that other people were saying this or that. Were, and people were feeling like, you know, it didn't matter that much. And one thing about Jesus in the Gospels in the New Testament is that his calling For people who want to follow him, for people who say, I want you to be my lord, and I want you to be my boss, and I want you to be the one who tells me what to do. I want you to be the one who knows more than I do. For people who want to follow him, his will and calling for human sexuality is it's kind of super rigid, like it's not we're not talking about like, the rules for our society, or we're not making rules for America. It doesn't have anything to do with that. In every one of these letters, there's a place where it says, for the one who has an ear, let him hear and for people who have an ear for jesus i want to listen to you and i want to do what you say and i want to give you the right to be my master even if i don't fully understand it and i want to do what you want me to do i want it it, it's like in the sermon on the mount it said jesus looked at the multitudes and turned to his disciples and said this isn't for them this is for you But but those who want to follow him were people who have come to believe that he made everything. Like sex, like sex is his, it's, it was his, it was his invention. Like it's super awesome. It's super fun. It's super sweet. It's super kind. It can, it's the most, I don't know, excuse me, it's the most fun you have in this entire world. You know what I mean? But, um, but for him, in his will and calling, it lives in a world of two people making a permanent commitment to each other, to love each other, to serve each other, to be faithful to each other until they're dead. And it doesn't live before that. It doesn't live outside of that. It doesn't live other than that. Not even in your mind, like not even in your mind, like in the will of Jesus, is that you don't even think about anybody in a sexual way and it's just like well who has ever done that like well he did and maybe mother teresa but it's that's kind of why he came to pay for the fact that nobody has really done that like we haven't we haven't really done that and and but it is his, like, will for us. And so there's a place in Matthew chapter 19 where they were talking about divorce and asking Jesus a question about divorce. He's said, like, OK, let's not talk about that. Let's go before that. And he quotes from Genesis chapter 1. And the part where it says that God made people in his image, in the image of God created he them, male and female created he them. And it's just like there's something about being created by God and something about being male or female that reflects the image of God. And then he says from in chapter Quoting Genesis chapter 3, he said, and that's why a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they become one flesh. There's something about a man and a woman and commitment to each other that fully reflects the image of the love of God. So I, I've, I, sometimes I ask, OK, so I hope you all don't mind if we just kind of talk about it. But I, I would, young couples, like if they're getting married and, and doing premarital counseling, so why you all getting married? Uh, we would, uh, you know, they say whatever. You could tell they're just making it up. And I So I always take them to Genesis chapter 2, and I said, Let me tell you why you're getting married. It says, The man and the woman were naked and had no shame. So that's why you're getting married. Everybody's looking for that person that they can be like naked with, like not only physically, but also emotionally relationally, personally, psychologically. Every, there's something in the human heart that's looking for their person. I'm looking for my person, the person that I can have intimacy with, that I don't have to be protected, that she's got me and I've got her. And I remember when I met Tina and I was only 20 years old and, the, and it wasn't long before I thought, there you are. Hey, you're my buddy. You're the one I've been looking for my whole life. There was a, there's a song I love. It's kind of, I guess, our song in a way, but it, it's an old country song. But it says, it says just like a tree along the riverbanks reaches up its branches to the sun above, we spend a lifetime reaching for a friend because everybody needs somebody to love. Everybody's reaching out for someone. Everybody's knocking on some door. And long before I ever saw you, you're the one my heart was reaching for. I wanted you since the day my life began. I heard your footsteps running just beyond my mind. And ever since that moment, I was reaching for your hand, hoping you'd be reaching out for, you, for mine. And that's what people want. Like that's what There's a longing in the human heart. God made us this way for intimacy. But it said the man and woman were naked, and they had no shame. And like, in order for people just to get married doesn't do it. It's a quest, the quest of intimacy and unprotected commitment and love. And, 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 and in order for that, I can't. I can't make her feel ashamed, or else she's going to protect herself from me. Like So there's ways that people do to each other that they can cause the other person to feel more shame than anybody in this world. And in the end, when they want it nakedness, they find out they wind up being protected from each other more than they protect themselves from anybody. So in Ephesians chapter 4, he just walks them through this. Don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Don't say critical stuff to anybody, especially to the one you want to be. You're going to have to get rid of all that critical attitude of yours. You're going to, if you want it, if you want what you want, if you want intimacy, you're going to, because it makes her feel ashamed. You're going to have to stop being critical. And you're going. To, and he says, you're going to have to stop being grumpy. He uses the word for grumpy. Nobody wants to be with somebody who's grumpy. You want to be with somebody who's happy to be with you. And he said, you're going to have to stop calling names. And you're going to have to stop yelling. You're going to have to stop doing all of that stuff. One of my favorite people who writes about marriage is a guy, I kind of found him several years ago, but a guy named John Gottman. I don't even really think he, I don't think he's a Jesus follower he's about an 80 year old clinical psychologist at the University of Seattle who has studied 2500 marriages over the last 30 years and he said couples in my research couples are either kind of happy or not happy they're either he calls them masters or disasters and couples that are happy they're happy in their marriage the reason they're happy is because they're kind This is all of my research. And the reason couples are unhappy is because they become progressively mean. Couples that are happy, the reason they're happy is because they say and do small things in the course of the day that communicate to their mate that they cherish that person and they cherish their friendship. And it's like, wow, I mean, if, and I know that there might be a person who says, one, one thing I kind of discovered in those years, like if it's about cultivating your friendship, th- this longing for intimacy, I'm going to have to be a good friend. When, during those years when I was reading all that stuff, uh, I realized something in the New Testament when it talks about the word love, Agapah, which means to care for someone, to love someone. It, you, it says 43 times in the New Testament, you have to love everyone. There's another word, the word phileo, which also means to love someone, but it's a little bit more fun. It, it means to be friends. Like to, it's where the word friend comes from. It's where the word kissing comes from. But it, it means to be friends. You're never told you have to feel that for anyone. You get to pick your friends. You have to love everybody, but you get to pick your friends. And so I came up with something that I kind of called the Friendship Bill of Rights. Like if you want to be friends with me, one, you have to like me. I mean, I'm, I knocked myself out one time trying to be friends with somebody, and I realized, oh, they don't like me. That's why we're not friends. You shouldn't try to be friends with someone who doesn't like you. So, if for us to be friends, you have to like me, and two, you have to care about our friendship as much as I care about it. I'm not going to be the only one caring about this, and you can't lie to me, and you can't hurt me. So, So, like, if if that's what I'm trying to cultivate in this intimacy that I want with my mate, I have to learn to care about this relationship. I have to learn to cultivate relationships. I have to learn to stop being critical. I have to learn to stop being grumpy. I have to learn a lot of things. In the letter to the Laodiceans, Jesus was at the door of people who don't need him knocking on the door and say, let me in. And I would say, are you still knocking? Because I really, really need you. Jesus, I need you to help me. I need you to help me become this person. I've been learning a lot of things. I've been learning a lot of things uh, recently about Ephesians chapter 5 and and Colossians chapter 3, the part about marriage where Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, da, da, da. Husbands, love your wives. OK, so that is following a certain format that was known to everybody in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire believed that stability of the empire depended on the stability of how of households, domestic households. So they had come up with, it comes from Aristotle somehow, but what they called household codes. This is how your household is supposed to be run. And they were concerned that maybe these followers of Jesus were kind of subverting that with different values. And so Paul put those into his letters to let them know no 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 we believe in the household codes he was subverting every value that they had because the household codes were only written to men and they were written to tell men how to train and control and rule their wives their slaves and their children I remember a guy telling me one time I feel like my most important responsibility before God is to disciple my wife and kids And I was like, wow, that sounds like a barrel of fun. (laughs) Like, what about your dog? You just let your dog run wild? You know, but but so when Paul, but when Paul, he did a Jesus remix of the household codes and he started out talking to women. What? And the men, that was unheard of. The men would say, you don't talk to women. You just tell me how to rule her. No, because I'm telling women to submit to their husbands because she is a... She is a human being in the image of God with infinite value and worth and honor and responsibility. And I'm talking to her, not to you, bud. And he said, and where it says in Ephesians chapter five, where it says, wives, submit to your husband. It doesn't even really say that. I don't know if you have a Bible that has words in italics if it's not in the verse, but it, it, the word submit is not in that verse. It's in the verse in front of it where it says, everybody submit to everybody. We're supposed to consider everybody, all people who follow Jesus are supposed to consider everybody more important than themselves and submit to them. And then he has a thing where he says to wives, I don't, some people think he might have been saying, you know, him too. I know he's the toughest of all of them, but (laughs) do it for him too. Some people have said, you know, if, if marriage, like in the, in like the New Testament, if marriage is saying to women, you have to be his servant, and you have to wash his feet, and you have to consider him more important than you, it kind of really does say that. But actually, it says, for example, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, everybody is supposed to serve everybody. Everybody is supposed to serve everyone. Jesus said everybody is supposed to wash everybody's feet. Everybody in Philippians chapter 2 is supposed to consider everybody more important. If it says it to women, it's to do it to their husbands. It's not because he's their husband. And it's not because she's a woman and he's a man. It's because she is a human being in the image of God. He is a human being in the image of God. And that's the way followers of Jesus treat each other. Her to him, him to her. And and when he gets to the man, he said, husbands, love your wives. And they were like, what? I mean, people think that the, that the will of Jesus for human sexuality, it's like, we, can't, we don't think that way anymore. When they first said that, they all thought, we don't think like this. Husband, loves your wives. You mean husbands, rule your wives. No, husbands, love your wives. And give your life for her. Give you, And like, like Jesus gave our life for us, that he might present to himself the church, just like his bride, with a wedding dress that is spotless and without wrinkle. She is like your body, and nobody hated their body, but they nourished their body. That's a word, a word that's used of feeding the baby. And so Paul says, husbands love your wives. And one scholar pointed out that in three verses, he's saying, husbands love your wives, and that means you do the laundry and you feed the baby. So it's, there's a place in, there's a place in chapter, the last verse of Ephesians chapter 5 where it says, husbands love your wives, and wives see to it that you respect your husbands. It's not what it says. I'm trying to understand this, but in the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, the New New International Version, the King James Version, there's a word. It's a strong conjunctive word. It's the word henna. It means in order that husbands love your wives in order that she might respect you. And I know that there would be guys that would be like, if this is what I need to do, if this is how I have to live out my intimacy, I'm going to have to be different. I'm going to have to be different, kinder and sweeter than I've ever been. Jesus, I need you to help me. If I've never said, I need you, I need you. If I never felt like I needed what you have to give, if you're still knocking at the door of my heart, I want to open it, I need you to help me. There's one, oh my goodness. I was going to do this in 24 minutes today. I wasn't going oh, to go past 12 o'clock. Oh, I'm just, I'm, okay, so, okay, three. But there's one other place, because all, the thing that really upset him was, because, like, all, you know, the thing, that really, the thing that really upset him was, that there were people who needed him, and they didn't know it, and he was willing to take them to a place where they would really know that, he, that they needed him so that he could give them what he died and rose again to give them, and they could have this beautiful relationship. There's a, the very first letter, the letter to the Ephesians, he said, I, he said, I know I know where you guys, you're awesome, you're doing a lot of great things, and you believe in this, and you fight for that. I have one thing against you. You've neglected your first love. The word first. It doesn't mean the love you had at the beginning. It's a word that means your most important love. You've neglected your love relationship with me. It's like this whole thing about like your like human sexuality and intimacy and marriage. The reason he cares so much about it is because it's a like it's a mysterious picture of the love of Jesus for us, and it's like. You learned that way, and it's what he wants from us. He wants a relationship of intimacy. And he said, so it's all, and I'm upset about it that you've neglected that, your time with me, and opening up your heart with me, and telling me your problems to me, and listening to me tell you that I love you. Remember from where you've fallen, and repent. And it says, do the deeds you did at first. But in, in the Greek, what it really says is, do the first thing. Do the most important thing. The most important thing is cultivating every day your love relationship with Jesus. He's upset if he doesn't get it, because it's all he wants from us is love. He died and rose again. Wake up in the morning. I wake up in the morning. I open the scriptures. I say to Jesus, tell me that you love me. And I write down reasons in what I'm reading, reading that he loves me. And I tell him that I love him. And I fall in love with Jesus every morning. And I do it every morning. And I never miss a morning. And people say, you're so disciplined. And it's like, I'm not disciplined. I don't like I don't like it when I don't love him. I don't like me when I don't love him. You eat every day, I do, I eat every day. You never skip a day, no, I I don't. You're so disciplined, no, I just don't feel good if I don't. You breathe every day, yes, every day. You never skip a day, I don't think I've ever skipped a day of that. It's like, wow, you're so disciplined. No, it's just, I turn colors and pass out if I don't. And I just fall in love with Jesus every day because, and just cultivate my love relationship with him. It's all because it's all he wants he died and rose again for us to need him and it upsets him when we don't and for us to love him and he really wants it thank you Lord Jesus thank you for your heart thank you that that when I think about what upsets you I love you more and I think about what you're you know, what you want from us. It makes me love you more. You just want me to bring my stuff to you and you want me to love you. Because you died and rose for love. Thank you for being the way you are. In your precious name, amen.
0: All right, let's sing out, here we go. I want to pour out my heart. though I want to risk it all. No holding back from the start. I'm not afraid to fall You fill my life with love The way you care for me So I set my heart above And give you every it really hard you never stop for the weak to go to, to the, the world, world like you, help me give my life away when you gave all for me, but give me the love to say I would do it?